Um, I'm going to do something a little different this morning, sermon-wise. Um, normally I do what's called expositional preaching, which is I take a passage of Scripture, I preach from that passage of Scripture, and bring up what I think the passage brings up. This morning, and this will be the only time I'll do that this year, it, um, I'm going to do what I'll just call a pastoral sermon, where I'm going to, I'm going to take some things I think we need to hear and think about as a church in this moment of time, in our city, on this date, and to make sure that we're um, discerning and ready to deal with it, and that I will take us to the appropriate Scriptures from there. Um, so, uh, I, have, um, I have an axe problem. This is not near half of the axes that I own. And uh, this is my favorite. It's a Swedish, felling, or a Swedish limbing axe. And um, it's, uh, it's designed to just slice through branches on trees. Once you cut it down, you just turn it into a brush pile and really fast. And um, it's one of the most—axes are one of the most useful tools in the world. I don't know if they're as good as the wheel, but— um, you can go to a class in Sweden, pay 2,000 bucks, go for a week. They'll teach you how to build a house with basically a couple of axes. Um, if you've got enough trees on your property, I guess. W- one of the things that, you know, we're not real close to anymore because we don't do a lot of blacksmithing ourselves is that um, metal tools like this, especially axe heads that are thinner like that to cut, um, are forged in a certain way. That is, they're, they're heated up and shaped. And then they go through a tempering process, which usually means they're heated up and cooled down, heated up, cooled down, heated up, and cooled down. That the, at the end, they're quenched or put in water or oil to um, freeze them kind of at that, at that state. And the reason for that is, is because you want them at a very specific hardness. Now, you might think, well, don't you want it at the hardest hardness? And the answer is actually no. You don't want to make it as hard as you possibly can, because if you make steel as hard as you possibly can, then it chips and shatters. It becomes brittle. It's so hard. And so if you hit something you're not supposed to hit, instead of put a little dent that you can then sharpen out of it, it'll like, it'll like chip a big piece off and so on. And then you don't, also don't want it too soft. If it's too soft, it'll, it'll dent when you're trying to cut stuff or the, you know, it'll bend or something like that. You don't want that either. So there's like this, there's this median, right? And axe junkies, of course, argue exactly what that is. But there's this specific place, not too hard, not too soft, that the tempering process creates so that it's, so that it's maximally useful. Does that make sense? And from the tempering process, we get the word for the virtue temperance, right? Temperance is the capacity to be neither too hard nor too soft, to be able to control yourself given the course of what you have to do so you can do the right thing in the right way at the right time, right? Temperance is the strength that allows you to act with prudence. Now, you might say, Nick, is it temperance like a Greek or like a Roman virtue? Like Christians talk about faith, hope, and love, and like it's the Romans or whatever they talk about, like fortitude, temperance, prudence, and courage or whatever. Um, fortitude and courage is the same thing. I missed one. Um, and the answer is, well, sort of, but how much of the Bible do you have to read to get to um, a failure of temperance in the Bible? To page three, right? Cain and Abel right? Cain is seething with internal resentment towards his brother because he doesn't want to do the right thing. His brother does the right thing and has the acceptance of God. And God says to Cain, he says, listen, your heart is full of all kinds of issues. Like, sin wants to have you, and it wants to master you and control you, but you have to control it, right? What is that? It's exerting self-control so as to control yourself. You can do the right thing, right? He was telling Cain that he needed to have temperance, right? And did he? Nope. No, and he killed his brother. Our capacity for destructiveness is enormous, right? And it's the virtue of temperance, exerting self-control rightly so that we can do the right thing in the right way at the right time with the right balance. Listen, sometimes 
um, sometimes you can flail around in life. And, you know, for, for those of you who are kids, like, you know, as parents, we try to make a, a, a big space in your life so that you can screw up a lot and things are still fine. But you get to certain places in life where the cutting edge, it's pretty precise. You get in conflicts with people, and you can't back down, but you can't blow the thing up. You've got to sort it. Like, sometimes, like, that swing, like, what you have to do to, like, slice the edges of, like, not harming, but doing what you have to do, it's the tolerances get tighter and tighter and tighter. And the higher you go in leadership, the more successful you are, the more responsibility that you have. Like, the, everything that's harder and harder and harder to make that right cut. And, um, in, in most societies, worldliness and, um, and sin is going to drive us to actually think we need more of the, uh, of the opposite of the virtue we really need. Right? Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters, how like, um, in a moment where um, we really need a lot more temperance, right, what, what does society tell us we really need to do? Get a lot louder, right? Tell people what you think. Don't let those bad people win, Right? Everybody who doesn't believe like you is a villain, and they have to be stopped. And because they're villains, what are you allowed to do to villains? What can you do to bad guys? Well, you know, whatever you want, because they're bad guys, right? They have to be stopped. So you're just acting in self-defense, right? So you can say whatever you want. You can trash their reputation. You can attack them openly. You can, maybe you can hurt them. Maybe you can physically hurt them. We've seen that in some protests and things like that, people physically hurting other people, because they think that they have the right to do that because, well, they're the bad guys. Right? It's literally the opposite virtue of what we really need. What we need at this moment, more than at any other moment I can think of in my lifetime, is temperance. The ability to feel something really strongly and order that emotion to choose to do what's the most productive, to be a tool that's useful, not just destructive. Listen, I can cut my leg right off with this thing, or I can do a ton of work really fast. Now, there's four things I want to talk about relative to this, and I'm going to jump over the first two. If you want to hear more about the first two, you're going to have to um, listen to the service from the first service, which will be on the podcast. Um, oh, look, they jumped me right to the third one. The, the first two are—so um, one of the things I've said is there's, um, there's four, what I'm just calling tides of anxiety. Right? Tides of anxiety. So one is facing— um, crises relative to government power and how we should all act together, right? So there, there are folks that feel like we need to shut things down and we need to like keep things clamped down with code because we can't let people get sick because people can die and more people will die and that's really important and other people are like, look, you're destroying generations of wealth and people's capacity to provide for each other. You're destroying like kids who've already fallen behind in school. They're not getting but maybe 30% of schooling from the video schooling stuff. Like they're, they're, we're losing huge amounts of human capacity in the loss of schooling. Um, one Stanford scholar I was listening to said that they estimated that there were, that there were like, um, there, there were more years of lost human life from having a lockdown than actually years of lost life from the people who actually died from the disease. Right? That it's a, it's a medicine worse than a cure. Who's right? I don't know. I'm a pastor, turns out. Okay, I don't, I don't want to get on a high horse about who's right, but here's what I do know. People are really divided about it, what we should do about COVID, but specifically what we should do through the government towards each other, right? And as our church, we've, we've really struggled with this. We haven't taken one position or another. On one level, we shut the church down for a little while, went— purely virtual, just do small groups, then we opened like this, we all have masks on, blah, 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 right? When it came to our school, when the government said, you got to shut down your school, we were like, I don't think so. 
And we sued them in like the state Supreme Court. And we have an injunction, so our schools have been open, but we're still waiting on the decision from the arguments that happened, I think, December 8th, right? Because we believe that it was, that we had to actually take a stand and say no to our government as best as we can, and to use the right means of doing it. So instead of like, we didn't protest, I didn't blow up a building downtown, we went through the court system, we got the best lawyers that we could, and we fought them in the legal arena, right? And we tried to do the most temperate and prudent thing we could. We tried to use wisdom, try to figure out what God would want us to do. We tried to balance everything. And a lot of people, high point, said a lot of stuff. A lot of people have attitudes um, and ideas about what we ought to do. I mean, one thing you could say about high point is people have thoughts, you know, and they express those thoughts to us. And I love that about this church. In fact, when I talk to most pastors, they clearly are pastoring less ideologically diverse congregations than high point. Okay, like I talked to conservative pastors, and almost their whole churches are conservative. And they're like, you know, the election was stolen from Trump, and we need to have civil war. And you're like, I'm like, oh, well, good luck with that. And then I know other pastors that their whole church is like progressive, and they're like, hey, we need to like, I don't know what, do all kinds of things that are very progressive. And, and like, I'm like, yeah, my church is all over the map. Like, I have like people who don't like to go outside, and people who are like rock climbers, and I've got progressives and liberals and conservatives and libertarians, and I, we've got like young and old and people who like, I mean, just you name it, and we, we can't agree on the color of the thing. You know what I mean? Like, our, we're all over the map, and I actually love that about my church. But listen, what that means is, is that we have to be more, um, we have to have more um, sort of like guts and strength relative to the virtues of being unified. You have to be able to like sit with somebody who you profoundly disagree with, who is applying the gospel in a way you would not apply it to something, and be able to disagree with them, and then come to a decision together about what we're going to do if we're—it's a shared action, and then you got to, like, go on with your life and be unified with them. And I've seen that happen at this church throughout this last year, and I've actually been really pleased to see how people have struggled through stuff and really tried to agree as much as we can, try to make the best decision that we can, and then try to move forward together. But I think there's going to be more of this, right? The second thing is relative to— being overwhelmed by the, by the um, changes in the digital world. The, the, the change that we're experiencing over our lifetimes into a digital world is kind of like the same thing that happened with the change into the printing press. It like completely changed human life. It changed how people thought, what they memorized, how they ordered thoughts of their minds, what they did for a living, all these kinds of things. And we're suffering from massive overexposure that human beings are just not built for. You know, you know who is supposed to be able to know everything that's going wrong in the world at the same time, care about all of it, and not be overwhelmed by it? That's God. Do you know who isn't able to do that? To listen to everything that's bad going on all over the world all the time and not be driven to crazed anxiety over it? That's you, right? Like, we, we're not made to function that way, right? 70% of Americans right now are, um, have access to the mobile world or the digital world 100% of the time. That is, there's no point during their day where they're not within arm's reach of a device that can portal them into the digital world. And most of what's coming out of the digital world is social media and news, which is almost all negative in the way it interacts with the human consciousness, even though it pings something that makes us want more of it. It's kind of like drinking Coke. Like, I mean, you just want—I could just drink those things all day, and then I'm just going to have fewer teeth and just—I'm going to be bigger in the middle here. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's not good for me. But there's something about social media and getting news and feeling like you're in the know. Human beings desperately want to understand the world that they live in. They want to feel like they're, they're the good guys. They know what's happening. They're informed. And also they're approved of. And that their life compares well to other people that it should compare with. And social media and news is like, do that for us in spades. But what it actually produces us is profound unhappiness, anger, and intemperate 
actions. Right? For adults, it's usually just consuming too much news. Like, I, you've probably heard me say this before, but when I, somebody comes for counseling and they're struggling profoundly with anxiety, um, there's like, there's four things that I just say, like, just for two weeks, just do these things. One, go to bed at the same time, preferably at 10 o'clock or earlier, because hours before midnight are worth two hours of sleep, and hours after midnight are worth one, okay? And eat a good breakfast when you wake up. Two, zero social media. Three, zero cable news. And the fourth one I can't remember right now. I'm getting older. Um, but it's basically to get rid of all these portals of stress. Right? Oh, the fourth one is I tell them to stop playing video games. Usually that's guys, but whatever. You, you get rid of these portals of stress and these portals of escape. Right? Because video games are a way to escape your real life. Right? Portals of social media and news bring in things that are not really part of what's your responsibility in your life. Both of those, in a sense, are pulling you away from your real life. You have real duties, responsibilities, and relationships in your life, and that's what you're supposed to concern yourself with, mainly, right? You, your, your vote isn't going to change if you follow an election for a year and a half, or whether you research the candidates about two days before the election for 20 minutes online, right? As long as you know how Google algorithms change what searches you do on candidates. Just don't read the first three posts. Just go further down than that. Now, because of that, one of the things that's interesting about this— can you go to that slide? Oh, yeah, just let me go through it here. So, okay. So, um, by every measure in America, among all groups of people of all ages, anxiety is radically higher than it was a couple of decades ago. It's rising every year. So, in 2017, there was a study done. They, they interviewed a couple thousand people, and they asked, like, like where is your anxiety level at a, at a certain—like, is it super high or kind of high or not that high? Um, and— Two-thirds of people put themselves in the top two categories of anxiety. They did the same study one year later. One year later, and it had risen five more percent. Barnes & Noble recorded in June of 2017, in one month, increasing their sales of books about stress by 25 percent. It's a full quarter in one month, right? And that doesn't even go into, like, studying teenage girls' relationship with social media and what that does to them, which is insane. Now, it's interesting, though, because, like, it's harder to study why people feel anxious exactly. And it turns out that a lot of it is specifically related to these things. Anxiety about safety or death, because they see news stories about school shootings and stuff, right? The extrinsic goals were just becoming more materialistic. Instead of, like, trying to be a good neighbor and a good person, we're trying to, like, get rich. Well, you can't really control that. You can control whether or not you become a good person, whether you believe in God, whether you love your family, whether you, right? You can control all that stuff, and you can know that you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're fulfilling your cause for your life. If what you're trying to do is get rich, well, you can't really control that, you know? And so it's much easier to get really upset and anxious about whether or not it's all going to pan out for you. Loss of meaning, like most human beings now just—they're so focused on what they're doing and what they're getting— they're, they don't have a coherent view of the world, but your mind desperately wants to know what your life means and what the universe you live in means, right? And you can't not want that emotionally and psychologically. So also, loneliness is huge. Family sizes have shrunk. There's way more American households with just one person in them. Loneliness is at epidemic levels, and that tends to lead to a lot of anxiety. Also, there's high use of social media. Talked about that already. And work changes, as well as media overloads and cultural fracture. That's—I can't get into that stuff right now. But, but basically, things are changing really fast. Now— Here's the thing. These are the causes of American anxiety. Now, let me ask you a question. Based on what you know about Christianity, does the Lord Jesus, his teachings and actions, deal with any of these problems? Like, these are the things Americans, irreligious Americans, and religious Americans are saying are causing their stress. 
This is what non-Christian, non-theological scientists that are studying American anxiety are saying are causing our stress. They're not, they're not trying to set up my sermon for me. Okay, like, they're just like, this, yeah, this is what they're dealing with. You guys, this is exactly what Jesus deals with. This is like a, if you made like a list of what in human experience Jesus deals with, it's literally almost exactly that list. So what does that tell us? Well, it's hopeful because it means if we got to know our Savior and grew in our faith and grew in godliness and allowed him to temper us, well, it might really help us with our anxiety. It also means that if we have just as much anxiety as the world, <laughs> it may indicate to us that we don't know our Savior that well. We haven't really been tempered in our faith. We're not exercising our faith and being discipled by Jesus like we can be. But it also means that if we would, there could be an incredible payoff for us. Right? Okay. Let's keep moving. I want to talk about these other two. So th- third is, tempered character has worked um, out the impurities of idolatry. Here's what I, I want to focus on leadership here. So one of the things that people do to cope with the anxiety of a really stressful world is they connect themselves to another person that they believe can bear the world. Okay, so if you think about it this way, um, let's say um, you go to this church and you think that I'm smart and you think that I don't have a secret life, that I'm, I'm go- a godly person. And like when you think about like, can I be a Christian in the world? You go, well— you know, Nick is my spiritual leader, and like, he's doing it, and so like, you know, if he's doing it, we can do it. It's fine. We're fine, right? Now, the, here's the problem with that. If you construct your faith that way, and you put people in as certain pillars for your faith, and they help hold up that weight, which is normal for people to do. People do this all the time in all kinds of different ways, right? What ends up happening is those people are bearing some of the structural weight of your faith, which means if those people fail, that will affect the structural integrity of your faith. Okay. One example of this this year is, um, for about the past 30 years, he died this last year, um, a guy named Ravi Zacharias was one of the top five clearest, best expositors of the Christian faith. He was what's called an apologist, somebody who makes a rational defense of the Christian faith. When I was in college, I used to order his cassette tapes and listen to them until I basically had them memorized to, like, help me, because there was, like, nobody helping me in the secular school I was in. There were all these different arguments coming from everywhere. I had no staff worker or college worker that could help me with them, and I felt really alone. And so I would listen to these cassette tapes to, like, build these rational arguments so that I could defend my faith in the university. He, he, made, he played a really important part of my life. However, even though I really respected him, what I took was the teachings about the Christian faith that I was verifying in the Bible. I was, I was testing it with other believers. And so what I was building were truths and arguments and theologies and stuff, and that was constructing my faith. So now years later, when we find out— so we found out in this last year that Ravi had a secret life, which included um, uh, sexual misconduct and sexual—even sexual assault. In fact, the report that came out this last week was that there's stuff that's worse than we thought. And the report from Christianity Today earlier this year was that it was pretty bad. Which is—which honestly, like, it hurts my feelings, and I'm really sad about that. I'm really sad for the church that a man with a legacy, a Billy Grahamish-like legacy, is going to be completely destroyed. And we won't be able to say, that guy did it. But here's the thing. Ravi was a carpenter, a builder to my faith. He wasn't a pillar of it. Do you understand the difference? It's a huge difference. Because if, he, if I took something from him, like a true pillar of faith, and he, the carpenter, falls, 
The pillar doesn't. Does that make sense? So one of the pillars of my faith is human frailty. That men and women are weak. That we need God. We're not self-sufficient. And anything can happen to us. And, you know, I was walking with my wife yesterday, and we were kind of lamenting this because he was part of both of our Christian upbringings. And I said, Alexi, like, I want to believe that if I was in his place, I would have done better. But like, I— like, I mean, I, like, I'm in, a, like, a, a fairly small church. I mean, like, he was, like, a Christian celebrity. He traveled all over the world. Like, I have seen young women swoon over, like, like, handsome, intelligent Christian ministers. Like, I mean, like, I've seen this before. I've seen the groupieism that happens even in the church. And, like, like, I don't know what would have happened to me if I was traveling 250 days a year all over the world doing that kind of work. Right? And so I'm not going to be, like, my response is, like, oh, he was— He's a terrible person. What a villain. I'm like, I better, I better focus on my frailties. I better like build in the friendships of people that I can confess when I'm struggling and people who are watching me and they know what I'm not doing very well and making sure that I have good boundaries in my relationships with the women in my life and like all, and like growing in my relationship with Jesus so there's like a fountain of living water so that my sensual indulgences aren't what I'm living for. And like, I, I gotta, I gotta like, because why? Because the pillar of my faith wasn't Robbie Zacharias. The pillar of my faith was the frailty of the human soul the need for vigilance in Christ. And some of the truths that I learned from him about, the, about Jesus being Lord. And, and I'm not—I don't have illusions about the casualties in the fight of the faith that happened. It, like, I had no illusions about that. So my faith isn't hurt one iota by the fall of this leader that was very influential to me. Understand? If you go to this church and you like me, right, I can be a carpenter. I can be a builder to your faith. I can't be a pillar. You cannot risk me being a pillar to your faith. I hope that throughout your whole life, I will be somebody you can look up to, and that my legacy when I die will be that my kids come after me and say he was this kind of person, that the women who were in my life said that I treated them as sisters and mothers with absolute purity, that my doctrine was pure. Nobody will say that I had secret outbursts of anger. Like, my hope is, is that everything that's said about me, like Billy Graham, like, you can just be like, that was the guy that did it. It can be done. Like, that's amazing. But you cannot let me be a pillar. No one can be a pillar. They can only be a builder. Do you understand? And if that's the case, then you build your faith temperately. And if somebody does really well, then you can be encouraged by them your whole life. But if somebody falls, it'll hurt your feelings. It'll be difficult, but it will not be devastating to your faith. And instead of it, like, demotivating you and hurting you, it'll motivate you to say, like, Lord, can you please help me so that I don't go down that path? Because I know he's probably a better man than me. I mean, like, honest to God, I, I, I stand here, I honestly believe, Robbie Zacharias was probably a better man than me. Probably the difference was circumstantial. That's what I fear. And so, what I want is to keep progressing, to grow in Christ, so that if I would—no matter what situation I'm ever in, I'll be able to stand. That's what I'm going to take from that. Not that he was a villain. And that's what our culture does now. Our culture does that now, that when somebody falls and fails, they throw them out like they're a monster, and they say, that person's a villain. They're so unlike me. And that is a ridiculously foolish thing to believe about human beings. Right? Now, the last thing, quickly, is um, there are situations that we're going to be in in which um, there's—it's going to seem like there's no win. You're, you're going to be put in situations where people are going to demand that you say something, you believe something, you act in some certain way, and you, you're really just between two tractor trailers driving at each other. You're actually in a vice. 
and you're like, what can I do, right? Uh, I think one of the clearest examples of this is issues of racial justice right now. I was on a call this week with Harold Rayford, African-American pastor friend of mine, and another pastor from Chicago who's part of a large church. It's a—it's all the churches on the call are over a thousand in attendance. And um, this other pastor was kind of lamenting because the question for that call was, what are you going to do on Martin Luther King Sunday or in February to— um, to support, like, like, black history or black church leaders or people like that in your church in, in your pursuit of multi-ethnicity. And this guy was like, listen, I am struggling with, like, anything that I can do and not get beaten to death. Like, <laughs> he's like, I don't know what you do that isn't too much of one thing or the other, that one group of people won't kill you or the other group of people. Like, I, like, I, I don't know what you would even do, right? And, and obviously there are some few things. Like, you can quote black theologians, and nobody's going to get upset about that if they're relatively orthodox, right? There, there are smaller things you do, but like bigger gestural, cultural changing kinds of things, there's very little that you can do, right? And um, Harold was on there, so, so we asked him, like, so, Harold, what do you think of that? He's an African-American pastor. He used to be here, and now he's in Columbus, Ohio. And he's like, he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> he's like, he's like, but here's the thing. Same thing at my church. It's not different in a black church. Like, if you try to act temperately to bring together the whole body of Christ to build unity and to do something rather than nothing, like, you're just going to get it, right? And, and I actually think this is great because what that means is, is that um, you've got two choices. Like, like, if you're in a vice, what are your two choices? Well, your one choice is to determine which group that's pressuring you has more power and can open more doors for you and just tell them what they want to hear, right? Which is which group in America? Like the conservative side of things and the progressive side of things. It's clearly the progressive side of things, at least in Madison, right? 97% of people in the media, now the president of the United States, the vast majority of university professors, almost the entire Silicon Valley. Like, there were, there were Republican candidacies this year that couldn't get a single person from Silicon Valley to sign up to be their tech people for their campaigns. Because they, the people said, it'll ruin my career forever in Silicon Valley. If I, if I work on a Republican campaign, even if I'm not a Republican, even if I vote Democrat, if I work in your campaign, it'll destroy my career forever, Right? So it's really clear who you need to kowtow to. I mean, I thought this was hilarious when, when Taylor Swift got really woke like two years ago, like super feminist and did her like big thing. And it was like her becoming herself. No, I mean, the genius of Taylor Swift is she's always right there with us telling us exactly what we want to hear. Right? Including her politics and all of her breakup songs. Right? Her last album was pretty good, I thought. Um, a lot more explicit words, but the one about affairs was really good. There were a number of really good songs on there. My daughter made me listen to it. Okay, so, so what do you do? Well, here's the thing. So you get two choices. One, you can say, who has more power? And I'll just, I'll just, like, capitulate to that person because that, they can open doors for me and they can not ruin my life. Your other option is to realize your job was never to please men. <laughs> that was never the job. That was never the point. That was never the goal. That was never your stewardship, Right? Like, turns out, if I lead the church faithfully, I probably am not going to please people who are more progressive than they are Christian or people who are more Republican or conservative than they are Christian. Right? It's, it's not going to work. Right? That was never my job. My job was always to please God. Right? God's question is not, well, can you do three things at once? Can you make a rock so big you can't pick it up? Like, that was never what God was asking me. What God asks me is, well, is there injustice around you? I mean, is there—I mean, can you identify it? Can you do something to make people's lives better? And who cares if it's justice or mercy? Like, if you're like, well, I don't know if that's officially injustice. Well, if their lives suck, call it mercy. Who cares? Can we do—can we make something go better than it was? Because of love, maybe we can, right? And so what should I do? Well, maybe I should get together with 
other like Christian minority leaders that I trust, and maybe we should like hash it out and talk about it. Maybe we can figure out something to try, right? But we have. We've done that. This church, this church released, I don't know, $200,000 during the pandemic to Christian ministries led by minority leaders who are deeply embedded in the Latino and Black community, helping specific believer Christian families who are struggling to help them do better, get new jobs, make it through and pay their rent, make sure their kids weren't homeless. Like really cool, good stuff. Not because we were trying to please everybody, but because in love, we were trying to recognize that the church is more than just this room, right? It's the whole church. Many of those people are of other ethnicities. They're embedded in other communities. They have different beliefs than us, right? And we will please God more. We'll grow more and love ourselves, and we will have a better witness to the culture if they see we think the church, we think the church is everybody who believes in Jesus and believes the gospel and really believes the truths of the scripture. And listen, I've got a lot of African-American, super Democrat Christian friends who believe the gospel. They believe, believe the Bible is the word of God written. They just think there should be more social programs than I do. And look, but when we sit down and we try to work through this stuff, it happens. We can work through it. We can figure out stuff to do together. But if we like knee-jerk react and we like push one way and we leave them behind, it's not going to work. Like, for example, this week, there, this last couple of weeks, there was this blow, blow up in the Southern Baptist Convention. Did you hear about this? The SBC, like, so frustrating, right? So the SBC has been doing some really great work to try to make their denomination inclusive of all people, right? This is the SBC. They, like, they used to believe in slavery, okay? Like this— it's the largest denomination in America. They're really working to be more inclusive of all these different people. A number of black um, congregations have come into the SBC. They were doing some, some really good stuff. Russell, Russell Moore was leading that stuff. Um, Trilla Newbell. Some really cool people, right? All six of the SBC seminaries have white presidents. They issued a statement a couple of weeks ago saying, we are totally against racism. We want to see a fully inclusive church. Critical race theory is completely anathema and totally incompatible with Christian faith. Depends on what you mean by that, right? So what happened was, now obviously a lot of our African-American friends, some of whom are Southern Baptists, they don't see critical race theory as this like neo-Marxist, fascist mechanism to destroy the family. They see it as a way to criticize how power is used, right? And so they think of critical theories as like really helpful for civil rights. And so when you're just like, all oh, critical race theory is terrible, you're all going to hell if you believe in it, they're like, what the— Right? They start cussing. And, and so, like, then some of these African-American pastors came out, and they were like, like, clearly the SBC, all they cares about is being Republican. They'd rather us be Republicans than Christians, and they don't care about unity at all. Right? Ah! Oh! So, like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, you guys! Right? And so, because J.D. Greer, the guy who's, like, like part of the leader, he's like, you guys, can we just stop? Maybe we should discuss. Like, what if critical race theory is helpful? What's really bad? How we should sort our way through this? But meanwhile, the horses are already out of the barn because we have white leaders and black leaders who are intemperate. And listen, I'm not going to name them because I just, I don't want to do that. I think temperance for me is to not name names right now. The example is good enough. But I really, like the two lead guys are great. The white guy, I mean, man, he turned around this major seminary that was coming apart. It's become for the last 20 years or so, like one of the best places to turn out incredible pastors who've led churches, who've led people to Jesus. I mean, like, really great stuff. And the African-American guy that, like, just, like, just set the thing on fire um, is, like, one of the best preachers there is. He specifically turned down scholars, full scholarships to, like, very liberal seminaries to go to a seminary in Chicago called Trinity that, like, preached the gospel so he could study the scriptures. I mean, like, like, he's, like, put it out there and put it on the line for this stuff. And, like, but he just— 
Man, these guys couldn't, they just couldn't hold it back. And it's so frustrating because like, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff in critical race theory and it is, it is horrific and it is very unchristian. A lot of the practice of it and the way it's functioning in the universities and like how people are using it and tra- doing trainings that works and like bullying people and saying stuff they don't believe. Like absolutely, yeah. But listen, critical theory is how you criticize things, right? And if there are problems in power structures, you have to have a means of thinking by which you go, hey, I don't think that's right, right? And that has to exist too. Like if somebody says, are there ways in which some people have privileges, others don't, that are, that keep going because people are already um, incumbents in whatever they are, right? Like every Republican believes that. Like every Republican I know believes that incumbent senators have all these privileges because they've been senators for 30 years, and we got to throw those suckers out so we can like start things over again and try to make it fair, right? That's literally exactly what black people say about our culture, right? They're like, you guys, there's like, all, like even if it's not racist, there's all these like incumbencies. And it's really difficult for us to break in. And we talk like it's truth, but a lot of it's just power. And they have to have a theory by which to, cr- to criticize that, right? Now, I don't see why it has to be Marxist, but it's got to be something. And look, that's not hard to sort out. You can sort that out over one cup of coffee. You sit down and you're like, okay, there's a bunch of stuff you want to criticize in the culture. I get that. We've got to have a tool for that. However, you know, Marxist socialism, produced like 120 million deaths last century. And, you know, there's a lot of white Christians who are really sensitive to that because we read all these books about that when we were growing up in our Christian faith. And so, like, we got to sort this out. Like, because I'm not going to go—I'm not, I'm not going to play team with Marxism, but I realize we're going to have to have critical theories by which we talk about this stuff. How do we do that, right? Christians ought to be on the forefront of that because they're willing to talk to each other about it. Let the world throw knives at each other. Fine, we can't stop that. But we can talk to each other, we can sort out our differences, and we can come to developments in thinking and practice that could lead to really good ends. Only if we can overcome our fear and our resentment, learn the self-control of Christ so that we can be temperate, So we have the self-control and the wherewithal to choose to do what's prudent and good and useful in the moment. Otherwise, we'll be somebody else's tool. God never asked us to please everybody. He asked us to please Him, to be unified with the body of Christ, and to do what's in the true good of our neighbor, whether they like it or not, whether they agree with it or not. And when it comes to a question like racial justice, we can do that. People are going to hate us. Listen, if you're a Christian, people are not going to like you. That's part of the deal, man. But you can have a clear conscience. You can be at peace. You can sort out those six issues of anxiety by believing in Jesus and applying that to your life. And you can know that you're walking in the will of God even when people are against you. Right? Like, what do you, what do you think my life has been like the last seven years as I've been involved in, like, racial stuff in Madison? There's tons of people who hate my guts because I won't say what they want me to say. They want me to say that if I'm for black people, I have to be 100% for everything the LGBT community says. Full stop, all the time, every minute. I've had a pastor say that to me. Either you're 100% for the progressive platform or you are against us, right? But my African-American pastor friend is like, no. Right? And that's the way it is. And like, I have to deal with that. And I'm happy to deal with that because like, 
I think God will be pleased, but God will not be pleased with me just hanging back and being like, well, nobody's going to be pleased. I'm not doing anything. Let's just get better speakers with our money. Like, God's not going to be pleased with that. We have to boldly act. But if we act out of resentment and fear, we're just going to do damage. If we want to be useful to Christ in these times, with all of these waves of anxiety, we have to be a temperate people. We have to be a temperate people. Remember Jesus in the crucifixion, right when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They taunt him in seven different ways. Think about that. You're bleeding to death unjustly, and they decide to play a game for who gets your clothes while you're still watching. Think about the indignity of that. You're already dead to us. Come down if, you, if you're the Son of God. You should just come down. Mocking, taunting. His response, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Affirming that they were doing something horrifically bad, but recognizing they didn't really know what they were doing, and his desire was for their good and forgiveness so he could act temperately in the moment and save their souls. And we, in that way, are supposed to be not just, not just to revere Christ, to be like him. Right? You should start at home with your roommate today. You can start with your, like, basic family arguments and be, learn to be temperate there. And then as you go, it'll get harder and harder and harder, but you'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. Father, as we, um, as we focus on following Christ in such a way as to becoming like him, we recognize that just like metal has to be heated up and cooled down, heated up and cooled down, goes through this process of tempering, we recognize that this isn't going to happen just in two minutes for us. We can, by faith, choose it to believe you and to believe what you want to make us and to commit ourselves to it. But we recognize that it's going to be, take time to build it. We're going to have to actually turn away from wrath in real conversations and arguments that we're having in real time. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us in those moments and that you'd strengthen us in those moments, that you'd help us to build self-control, you'd help us to build temperance until it is as strong as the temperance of Jesus so that we can be useful to you in whatever tide of anxiety we find ourselves in. And we pray that by pursuing this, you would bring your peace to us. That our hearts, instead of being racked with the anxiety of all these changes and all these difficulties and all these problems, that we would just walk with you, seeking to please you, following what you've told us, knowing that you are in charge of all the things in the world and that we could walk under your providence. I pray that the effect on us would be peace, God, and the capacity you build in us would be temperance, and that it would be for your glory and our good and the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name.